It is good to be in the Lord's house this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, open them to the Gospel of John. We've been going through the study of John uh, here on Sunday mornings over the past uh, however long it's been, year and a half uh, or so, and been a uh, just a fruitful study. And I use that a little tongue in cheek because we're in uh, John 15 this morning, uh, one through eight. John 15, one through eight, and the subject is on that of fruit and bearing fruit. I'm just going to read the text for us as uh, our custom is and and just set it in front of us and then we'll uh, look at it together this morning. Uh, The Bible says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so, and so to prove to be my disciples. I am is a introductory phrase we normally follow it up with uh, something significant about ourselves or descriptive about ourselves uh, we try to describe us i am this or i am that in a way someone else might come to know us uh, in the bible the the statement i am in and of itself uh, bears a weight of significance for those of you who have have done a study in this, who draws your mind back to Exodus 3 when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses says, what's your name? And he says, I am that I am. You'll go tell him I am sent you. Uh, And so we see God revealing himself as the living one, the true God, the God of their fathers, the unchanging one, the always present. You fill it in, God is. That's who he is. When we get to the Gospel of John, he, he gives to us seven of these I am statements concerning Jesus. He picks seven just like he does pick seven miracles or seven signs and seven, uh, seven sets of teaching, all to, to make his argument of who Jesus is. It is a statement which testifies to the deity of Christ. We saw that in John 1, where he says he is, he is equal with the Father, he is eternal, the eternal word, creator of all things. And, but it's more than just him speaking of his divinity. He follows those statements with a series of descriptions so that we might understand who he is and what he has come to do. Uh, he, we've already seen six of these where he describes himself as the bread of life in chapter number 6, the light of the world, chapter number 8, the door, and the good shepherd in chapter number 10, chapter 11, he claims to be the resurrection and the life, and of course, chapter 14, he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Each of these tell us something about him uh, and about the grace in which he has come to provide for us. Uh, this is God at work and, and what he has come to bring us. The seventh of these statements and the final one uh, in this fashion is found at the first part of chapter number 15 in that statement, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. In a very straightforward fashion, Jesus claims for us or to us uh, that all life and all fruitfulness, fruit bearing and whatever you want to describe that to be is directly associated with him and without him there is no life or no fruit and that's the claim that he's making and that we read this morning everything is dependent upon this relationship with Jesus Christ he's already said in a way in which may uh, puzzle us still puzzles us and puzzles the disciples in verse number 20 of chapter 14 you can look back at it with me as he began to try to explain what it means to be in relationship with Jesus and, and the gospel at work and the spirit in us. Uh, and he says, after receiving the Holy Spirit, verse number 20, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, I believe that's what he has given John chapter 15 for, to kind of flesh out a little bit of what he means by by us in him and him in us. In fact, it reminds us of this uh, theology of Paul, which says roughly 164 times just in his epistles, uh, in Christ or in him, summing up all of the blessings and graces given to us in the Christian life as being uh, connected to in, dwelling in Jesus Christ brings or begs the question, doesn't it, when we ask how closely are we to Jesus in the Christian life? Is he one of those introductory kind of things in salvation where we come to him, we, we confess our sins and put our faith and trust in him, and then we go on to the next things, set of commandments or a set of things to do, whatever it may be, or is there something more fundamental to the Christian life associated with Jesus that continues on? Well, of course, we know in Jesus' statement here that without me you can do nothing to answer that is he is far more significant and important to the Christian life than many times we give credence or understand. That's the thing Jesus is addressing with his disciples as he is getting ready to leave them behind in this analogy or allegory as some suggest or illustration in chapter number 15, verse number 1, of being the true vine. Being the true vine. And we'll look at it that way, beginning first with the vine. Jesus himself will look at the Father and then maybe uh, conclude with a few exhortations, Lord willing. Uh, I am the true vine, verse number 1, look at it with me. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, that language continually uh, brings the idea of a grapevine, doesn't it? It's the thing that comes to your mind. I, I don't know if you think of any other fruit or anything else comes to your mind, but it would not have been lost on the disciples. Uh, they understood the illustration. They lived in a culture and in a time where, where vines and those things were, were commonplace. 
In fact, the symbolism of the vine and, and uh, fruit has uh, embedded in Israel's history. Herod and the second temple, which was considered a wonder of the world during his time, would have been the same temple in Jesus' day, would have been um, decorated with golden vines uh, throughout the courtyard, and there was huge golden, um, like, fruit grapes <laughs> that were carved or whatever they did with that, cast. Uh, you can correct that later, but they made them out of gold, and they were there in the temple for everyone to see. It was a symbol of the Canaan land. You remember when the spies went in, they brought these massive clusters of grapes with them back uh, with the 12 spies back in the time of Joshua and Moses. And so during Jesus' day, this was evident where they went in as they walked in through the gates of the temple. It was also during the Maccabean era, that would have been an intertestament period between the Old Testament, last Old Testament prophet and Jesus, uh, part of the symbolism of the Jewish nation was a vine. The coins were stamped with a vine on it, uh, which was uh, something of uh, a motto of Israel itself. But most notably, uh, and I think what Jesus is referring to here, or, or what would have been in the disciples' mind, most notably in the Old Testament was the frequent reference to Israel being a vine. Uh, you may recall these in Psalms 80 and Isaiah 5, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, over and over, God uses this analogy of Israel itself. They are a vine planted by God. They're his vine, his, his, uh, uh, his work in which he is doing in the world. Uh, but interestingly enough, every time Israel is described as a vine, it's in association with their failure. Their failure produced fruit. Uh, their failure to bring forth something that is uh, just or good or righteous. In fact, let me just read a little bit of Isaiah 5 for you. <clears throat> God says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. God goes on to explain in the parable how that he, what else could he do to his vineyard? He put a good vine in it. He, he did all the cultivation that needed to be done. And yet when the fruit came, it was sour grapes or it was wild grapes, but not the sweet grapes that he had anticipated. In fact, he goes on and says, what kind of fruit was he looking for? Verse number seven of Isaiah five, he says, and he looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed for righteousness but hold an outcry. Again, over and over, showing the failure of Israel to be that source of, of blessing and that source of goodness or life in the world in their surrounding communities. In fact, what happened all throughout the Old Testament as they were in the middle of their area, in the middle of their culture, instead of sanctifying the world around them, they were influenced and contaminated by the world around them and in them. And here in contrast, Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. Contrasting the failure in the Old Testament, he would be the source of life and blessing to God's people. In fact, it's interesting when you think about this, uh, Jesus being that fulfillment uh, and the vine of the Father, 
that no longer would the blessing of God and the people of God be marked by some nationality or ethnicity. Not a particular group of people. And by that, you would no longer have to become an Israelite or Jewish or proselyte to receive life from God or blessing from God. In fact, all of that is given to us in connection with Jesus Christ. He is the life-giving source. He is the one that brings the blessings of God to us. And you know that, don't you, church, that's, that's been in your Bibles long enough that the source of joy and peace and goodness, of fulfillment, of forgiveness, all of that is coming to us through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to receive that. That's what he's saying when he says, I am the vine and, and those branches that abide in me, that, that he is the means that we might have a harvest that pleases God and glorifies God. No longer do we need to live in our rebellion and and animosity towards God and unfruitfulness, we can have life and we can please God through Jesus Christ. He says in verse number one, I am the vine, the true vine, as opposed to all other false vines or all other failures that you might point to. Then he goes and tells us the father. Notice with me at the end of verse number one, the father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice the father's intricate role in the vineyard. Uh, He is in the business of fruit. uh, He is in the business of caring for his, his vineyard, his vines, his people. There's something of the the care of the father in this, the tenderness of him, his attentiveness to those who belong to him. Uh, He's not aloof. He's not like uh, like some of us that have a garden. We just kind of hope it makes it, never weed it, never care for it. He is is vigorously attentive to what's going on in his vineyard. In fact, so much so that he is tending to the plants uh, that it may produce more fruit. And there's a progress in this. Isn't there? Bear fruit and much fruit, more fruit and much fruit as he goes through this. Notice he describes two works in verse number two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And we don't see it in our Bible, but it, there's a kind of play on words, a, a similar sounding in the original, but basically what he's saying is there's there's one activity of the Father of cutting away the fruitless branches and one activity of the Father to prune or to cleanse those branches that bear fruit. Which begs the question, what does he mean, the branches that do not produce fruit? Well, I won't uh, lie, there's a difficulty in interpreting this in the sense that there's a lot of disagreement on what's going on here in verse number 2 and verse number 6. Notice every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, which means simply to cut off, to remove. Verse number 6, he adds to that, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers and branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. So here you have this idea of being cut away and this warning of being burned by fire. So what is he talking about? Some suggest what's being said here is that one can... 
live in a certain way to where they become unfruitful and that unfruitfulness, losing their salvation, their, their, their life-giving source from Christ and ultimately perish and lose their salvation as you see there, which I think is wrong. Uh, it dismisses all of the work of Jesus saying he keeps those that belong to him. The second option, which I tend to agree with, is that he is speaking here of abiding on a superficial level. Those in him, in verse number 2, those branches that do not bear fruit, are in him in the sense that they are associated with him, but they are not receiving the life which Jesus offers. The whole issue in these verses here is fruit or fruitlessness, is to bear fruit or barrenness. And so in this, there are some who have a familiarity with Jesus, maybe even association with Jesus, but have no life-giving source from him. They, they, they are fond of the church, they're associated with the church, but they've never been born again. Uh, they've never received that life of that new creation in Christ Jesus, old things being uh, put away with. Now, Judas was an example of this, wasn't he? Just earlier, we saw at the beginning of this uh, sermon or this upper room discourse, Judas was there present with him. Jesus said, oh, somebody's going to betray me. And they're like, who was it? Because Judas, in every external outward sign, uh, showed to be a true disciple. But at the end of the day, he proved himself to be an apostate, proved himself to not be in Christ. It's not to scare Anyone, but what it is to say here, I think rightfully so, that being a Christian is not belonging to a church. It's not being a church member. That's not what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is not being raised in a Christian family or being born in America. Those things are good in and of themselves. A lot better than the alternatives in many ways. Being a Christian is not being Republican or Democrat. I just had to throw that in there or independent, but being a Christian is being in Christ, associated in Christ, receiving from Christ life, forgiveness, uh, and the Holy Spirit and all those things that come through him. Those who are not in him, those who do not bear fruit, they will perish. The Father removes them and they will perish. Well, notice you see the mention of those branches that do not bear fruit. He takes away in the second work that he does. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And here's a reminder that the mark of discipleship is fruit in some measure, in some degree. And I love the way he says it and this progress of fruit reminding us that you're not as fruitful as you could be or will be. Is that comforting to you? You've not arrived. I mean, you're not the perfect picture of Christianity. And and, uh, in that sense, there's more uh, that God is doing in your life. Uh, That's a comfort to me. Because when we look at fruit, the the very first signs of it is what? Repentance and faith, isn't it? That the Spirit of God is working in our life. That we turn from our own way and turn from... Uh, turn from saving ourselves to putting our faith and trust in Christ, turning from our sin, turning to him. That's the first evidences of fruit. 
Now, there's much, much more to come along from that. And, and what, God sa- what Jesus is saying is that the Father is actively in those plants that are putting their faith in Christ, turning to Christ. He is working to, to bring about more fruit so that we might show this relationship with Jesus. Uh, someone told of a conversation of a small child and her father, and you may have heard this before, but the child, and, and can I say children have the best questions, don't they? I used to do a few uh, questions and answer uh, a long time ago, uh, and children always had the, the toughest questions to answer. I mean, gr- grown people, they're like, well, you know, how old was Moses when he built the ark. You know, they don't want to embarrass the pastors, so they don't ask him. Children don't think about that stuff. They just ask difficult stuff. This child was asking her father about God and the bigness of Jesus and and all these things. And, and of course, the response was, he is everywhere. And he created everything and can do anything. Of course, the child in, in simplicity and her mind with amazement, which oftentimes we outgrow, said, and he lives in us? To which the father replied, yes. And with a puzzled expression, the response was, well, shouldn't he stick out somewhere? Shouldn't God in you stick out somewhere? Shouldn't you abiding in Christ have some outward demonstration? That's what Jesus is talking about here, isn't it? Being in Christ, there's nothing wrong with the vine, as we've already said. It's God planted fruitful, life-giving. And he's saying those who abide in Christ, the Father takes. And as they bear fruit, he prunes them that they bear more fruit. Now, what do we mean by fruit? And some answer this. The fruit is simply soul-witting. God is glorifying that we, we bring in many to the kingdom of God. I think that's a good thing to do. I think God is glorified in that. Others suggests that this is a deep, meaningful prayer life that he's referring to here when he speaks about fruit. It may be the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians, love, joy, peace, and and so on that he's talking about here, the Spirit's life through us. And I think think it's a combination of all those things. I think what Jesus is saying here is a culmination of all Christian activity and grace that is supplied through our union with him. All that God gives to us, produces in us, makes of us, and does through us is what he's talking about here in fruit, in my understanding. Productive ministry in Christ-like character. How will the world see Jesus without him sticking out in you? Through the fruit in which you bear. Through your character and your conduct. Through the endeavors it is in these ways that the Father is working to make us fruitful. And how does the Father do this? Well, I think he does it in two ways. In this world, in the agriculture world, and those of you who actually grow grapes uh, can correct all that I get wrong in this because I can't. I can't even grow tomatoes. So, And that's virtually easy, right? You just plant those and leave them alone and come back and eat them. Well, they would cut off the tops of the plants. They would cut out parts of it or other parts to keep it from running off too quickly so that better fruit would be produced in them. Uh, There would be suckers or other things like that that the base of the plant that would steal and drain the nutrients that would 
cause uh, the plant not to prosper as it ought to? And isn't that really some of the ways God is working in your life, cutting and it feels sometimes like hacking and taking away so that we may be more fruitful, so that Christ may be seen more clearly in us? He does it through the knife of his providence, doesn't he? Bringing us in situations in life and circumstances in our lives, bringing both the difficulty, the pain, trials, suffering, persecution, all of these things in our life, not to harm us or to hurt us, though pain does oftentimes come along with these things, but for our good, uh, to produce in us those fruits of righteousness, which are mentioned in Hebrews 12, peaceful fruits of righteousness. Now, Peter talks about this, doesn't he, in in First uh, Peter 1, 6 through 7, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's the trying of your faith, isn't it? James, probably most notably, says in James 1, 2, and 3, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter what? Various, multicolored, all kinds of stuff. Right? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He's speaking of a mature Christian. And he says, one of the ways this maturity in the Christian life comes is through these various things that God brings into our life, not for our harm, but for our good. And we go back to the fact that he is our loving father. Notice it's the father, not just God in general that's doing these things, that is the vine dresser pruning us, but our loving heavenly father. And so out of his love... He brings these things in our life, disciplines us so that we may bear fruit. Uh, we got a lot of things to cut away in life, don't we? Uh, that bit of idolatry and the, that, bit of, uh, uh, that bit of lack of, you know, the doubt that sometimes creeps up, the, the anger towards someone else, maybe bitterness and unforgiveness and a whole host of other things that come along with that. And, and through this life, God continually is working to to take those things out, get rid of those things that we may trust him and we may display Christ more clearly. You cannot have a suffering Savior without having experience of some suffering. You cannot show him rightly if everything in life is going well. I'm not saying we should love all this stuff. We should love the outcome. I think that's what James is saying when he says, can it all joy? What I'm saying is that in our fruit-bearing God and his love and his care, both for us and, and for Christ is, and, and the world around us, which is being a witness or a testimony to, uh, to that fruit or being, uh, receiving blessing and joy from that vine, he is bringing those things so that we might be more effective and useful in the kingdom. The second way he does this is, is through the word of God itself, the precision of the word, doesn't he? Notice verse number three. <clears throat> he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And he made that reference earlier in the washing of the feet, saying you don't need to get saved all over again. He's not, it's not what he's talking about. 
one of the ways we have come to faith in Christ is through the gospel, isn't it? It is the power of God unto salvation. But God also takes that, that very word that brings us to faith in Christ and also corrects, instructs, and guides us in faith in our walk, doesn't he? Remember, Hebrews tells us in chapter number 4 that the, the book is alive, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Not a, not a think of a broadsword that you think hacking away at us, but that surgical knife that can separate uh, spirit and soul if there was ever ability to do that. One of the ways God prunes us is through the knife of his word as he works and exposes, as he instructs and guides and directs us, as he stirs on and strengthens our faith. And as he, as he, as James says, as he exposes ourself, the mirror of God's word. So the father is pruning that we may bear more fruit through providence and through his word. Now, let me just offer some clarity and a charge, I think, is what he does here in verse number four, is he's really restating and kind of pressing on the disciples a little bit in this illustration. He says, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And notice verse number four. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Is that pretty clear? I mean, he's pretty straightforward, isn't he? Uh, he's given the illustration, Mike, if you had a, had a branch laying on the ground, and you go to it and you're waiting for it to bud a flower. You know, just wait for some grapes to come out. That's just laying on It's just not going to happen. And he tells his disciples uh, that this whole relationship between me and you is is not just temporary. It's not just... Uh, surface but but without me you may not understand this and, and you'll grow in your understanding of this and i think that's true for us wouldn't you agree with that we grow in our understanding of this literally without me you can do nothing not that you can do some things except for the big things you can call on me call on the big guy when big things happen and then when when the small things take care of it yourself how many of you tried to do that when you said hello to your spouse this morning. You just did it in your own flesh and it didn't go too well. You know, I'm just kidding about that, but nevertheless. Jesus is not messing around here. And it's important for us to grasp. It's important for us to understand that, that without him, that we are fruitless. That growing in our likeness to Christ, growing in our usefulness and service to God, growing in our... Our faith and reliance on God is all dependent, still continually dependent upon Christ, ongoing with Christ. Not just what Christ did 2,000 years ago and when he died on the cross, rose from the dead, and it's just all there. We just draw from that. No, that continual communion with Christ. And Jesus wants them to understand, especially to those like Peter and the rest of us who are very confident in our own abilities and our own talents and our own strength and, and self-determination. You can't do it. You can't do it. And, beloved, I know it's February, but how many of you are already frustrated with the goals you set this year? I mean, we're, we're just talking about a month and a half. And that may be silly explanation for some of you who feel overly guilty about that. Um, we're all there with you. But don't you find that frustration in your own Christian life? You're not as far along as you'd like to be. 
And haven't you, you, you you've at times in your life says, I'm going to make myself more holy. I'm going to be a better this, I'm going to be a better that, and at the end of the day you find out you're you. <laughs> it's just kind of sad, but you've been you your whole life, so there you go. And many times like that, it's because what we do is we try in our own strength and our own ability. And I think God at times lets us, lets us end up in frustration to remind us that without me you can't do this. Not without me, you can't uh, charge the nations uh, for the kingdom of God and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think that's true, don't you? But without me, you cannot live your Christian life. Without me, husbands, you cannot love your wife rightly. Ask your wife, she'll tell you. Wives, without Christ, you cannot uh, do what the Bible commands, submit to your husband. You, parents, you can't. You can't raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord without Christ. Single person, how are you going to stay holy and pure in the season and time that we live in? You can't even, you can't even get on and check on your friends on social media, can you? Well, I mean, you can, but you know what happens. Bombarded with it. How do you stay pure? Well, you can't do it in your own ability. You might have all the safeguards in the world, but that, that resource, the ability, the power, the fruit comes from abiding in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. All that I'm leaving you to do can only be accomplished through me, me through you. That's what you see in the verse 4 at the beginning of that. Abide in me and I in you. And this mutual dwelling together, staying with. I think that's very important. As Jesus says it over and over. Pink makes this statement in his commentary on this. and He says, thousands of Christians are complaining of barrenness, but they fail to trace their barrenness to the right source, the meagerness of their communion with Christ. Consequently, they seek fruitfulness in activities, often right in and of themselves, but which he is unrecognized, speaking of Christ being unrecognized, can never yield any fruit. Christian, do you see... And do you recognize your dependence on Christ in this morning? Not just to save your soul, but to live. Live this day in a way that glorifies God. To, uh, to live in the relationships that you live in. To continue believing and trusting in Him and sufficiency when things are difficult and dark. Do you recognize your dependence on Him? Or is your Christian life one of those which is busy about religious activities, but not so much about a continual abiding relationship in Jesus. Isn't our lack of prayer life oftentimes a, isn't our lack of prayer often a a sign of that? Doesn't it tell us really what we're trusting in or who we're trusting in? or lack, or our seldom meditation on God's word. Uh, no wonder many times our, our growth in the Christian life, our spiritual growth is hindered. Our progress is stunted. Why? Because I, although we do not produce the fruit in our own life, we receive that which comes from the vine. He still commands his disciples in verse number 4, to, and, and, and following, he goes on and commands it, Uh, To abide in him. 
set their thoughts on him, to dwell with him, to stay with him, to, uh, to remain, to, to not seek their confidence and, and their strength or their help in any other means, but to, to set their thoughts wholly on him. That's what we need to be. That's where we need to be, isn't it? To abide in Christ. Uh, to be reminded that he is our all in all. That in him we have the resources and in him we have the, uh, the strength and in him there is grace to be found and in him there, we begin to be changed a little more and more into his image. As one theologian uh, says, we, we tend to mimic or we mirror what we look at. What we set in front of our face, we begin to take the, the image or shape of. Uh, the Bible speaks about that in the Old Testament in a negative way, that we become like the idols we worship. And, and tongue-in-cheek, God says they become deaf and dumb just like their idols. Uh, speaking of the idol worshipers in the book of Isaiah. And so it is true also in the Christian life, isn't it? As we behold the face of Christ in 2 Corinthians, we're being changed from one degree of glory to another. We're being more and more conformed to the image of Christ because we are abiding in him and receiving from him so that we might be fruitful and productive and glorifying God. Now, how do we do that? Let me share two things very quickly. How do we do that? How do we abide in him? Don't you you like those words? You're kind of like, I know what it is, but... not really quite sure what I'm supposed to do with all this. How do we abide in him? Notice verse number seven. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's two things mentioned in that verse, isn't it? One, there's this abiding in him and his word abiding in you. Almost a restatement of what he's saying here. Uh, abide in the words that I have given to you. You're clean through the word which I spoke to you, as Jesus told him at one point. And he's saying, abide in them. Abide in my word. Know what my word says. Meditate on the promises. Meditate on how it reveals me to you. You remember the Psalms 1 that we opened up with this morning, the blessed man. He doesn't do all the bad stuff, but we're not just people who don't do stuff. Uh, And I think sometimes we're most notable about what we don't do than what we do do, right? Did that come out right? Just nod and agree if it did. If not, just uh, pray for me. But the blessed man is blessed because his meditation, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And because he delights in the law of the Lord, he meditates on it day and night. How do we abide in Christ? We abide in him by letting his word dwell in us richly, as he says in Colossians or, or, or other places. We set our th- hope on the promises that he's given to us. We will not grow. We cannot grow. We cannot receive the grace and the work of the Spirit of God effectively without being in the word of God. So we, one way we abide in Christ is by abiding in his word. Meeting him in his word and that word that he's given to us. And all scripture is profitable for us. Even the book of Ecclesiastes, right? A friend of mine who's preaching a series in Ecclesiastes is preaching. Some guy come up to him and says, not that book. (laughs) It's like a thorn in the flesh. Um, (laughs) Not that book. It's in the Bible. It's for us. It's for our edification, our growth. 
be a Christian. I know we do our Bible reading plans. I know we do those things like that. And not just the time we're in the Word, but let our minds come back to it. Meditate on what God says. Isn't that the very instruction given to Joshua? How will you prosper by setting this before your eyes continually? Meditating on it and not turning from the right to left. That reminds us if we want to buy in His Word, we need to read it, we need to meditate on it, but we also need to submit to it, don't we? It's not just intake, intake, intake. That's good. But it's also submitting to it, being obedient to it, letting God uh, direct our steps through his word. The second way mentioned here in verse number seven, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. He already talked about prayer earlier in chapter number 14. He'll speak about it again uh, in chapter number 16. And the other way we abide in Christ continually is by speaking to him, by praying, by going to the Lord in prayer. Prayer is not a, a break a glass and pull the lever when the building's on fire, is it? It isn't. That's all it is. And we should do that when the building's on fire, break the glass, pull the lever and get out of there. Uh, you should do those things. But prayer is that continual communion with God, continual fellowship with him. Pray always without ceasing. And prayer is that declaration that we're dependent upon him. You remember, without me, you can do nothing. Don't be offended at Jesus' remarks. Because you're not without him if you're in him. Isn't that the promise? Isn't that the good that he is trying to tell his disciples? You're not without him if he abides in you. Seek him, pray to him, ask him for the help. Ask him as you come to his word and you'll be like, I just can't do that. I, I read that, read it over, memorized it backwards. I still can't do it. What do you do? Do you close the book and just don't do it? Well, you go to the Lord and ask him for that help and strength that you need to do those things he's commanded you. Do you always do them perfectly? No. You go to the Lord and you ask him to forgive you. And all that, you commune with him through prayer and fellowship. Years ago, I was at a pastor's um, <clears throat> independent fundamental Baptist King James only pastors. <laughs> I could add a, a few more uh, adjectives in that. It was at a pastor's meeting. That he had three pastors competing, I mean preaching. And um, one right after. It was terrible, isn't it? I'm, I'm off, I'm off my notes. Um, anyway. The first guy did okay, and, and I forgot what he preached on, wasn't quite sure, and, and um, had a few good jokes I won't repeat. Uh, the second guy, I'm not sure what he said, but the third guy got up. He wasn't in our, uh, our group. He was an outsider in more ways than one. And he said he was, he was doing some thinking, and he was convicted one day when he was studying, preparing a sermon, and he said, you know, um, in his thinking, God was telling him, you preached about me. And, and about my things, but you've never truly preached Christ. Him as a person, relationship, the benefits that flow from him, what he is to us as believers. He says, that's what I've called you to do. Uh, and, and when he was sharing that with uh, me, it just a light went off, and I said, that's what I'm supposed to do. Now, I know I don't do it perfectly, but it reminded me, during that time in my life, most of my language was in general God talk. It's not bad. I like God. And God called me to preach. 
But they began a turning in, in my thinking at that time. It's not just God in general that saves us. But God the Father and, and God the Son, Jesus, he is our hope in, in life and death. And, and to bring myself back to the reality of the, the preciousness of what it means to be in Christ. It, it, it's a continual reminder, not just a generality of I believe in God, but my hope is in Christ. And don't be afraid to say that. I know his name's offensive in our culture we live in, but there's no other hope, no other name given to man whereby we must be saved. He is the vine, and, and all that he has, he communicates to us through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? So that we may be fruitful. Without him, you can do nothing. But if you're in him, you're not without him. If you're in him, you're not without him. And if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you don't know who he is and Never put your faith and trust in him. That's why he came. That's why he lived a sinless life and died on a cross so that sinners like you might find hope and help and forgiveness. And that turning from your sin and putting your faith and trust in him who died on a cross for those very same kind of sins, you might know what it means to be born again. I pray if you have never done that, Talk to someone before the day's over. Even now in your seat, put your faith and trust in Christ. You don't have to be without him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the blessedness of, of Christ and all that he communicates to us. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and you would let it linger in our thoughts and minds throughout this day and this week and strengthen us. And even those things that need to be corrected in us. I pray that you would do that. Father, maybe someone here who has a, a, a hardness against you because of the situation they are in life, I pray that you would, you would let them see the goodness of your love found in Jesus. That they would set aside and turn from their bitterness and again repenting, come to you for that healing, trusting you. Lord, would you do that even now? In Jesus' name, amen.